Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Connecticut Senator George P. McLean's crowning achievement was overseeing the passage of one of the country's first and most important wildlife conservation laws, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. The MBTA, which is still in effect today, saved billions of birds from senseless killing and likely prevented the extinction of entire bird species. My guest today, Will McLean Greeley, grew up with a deep interest in American history, politics, and birds. After retiring from a 35-year career in government and corporate market research, he began a four-year research and writing journey to learn more about George P. McLean and his legacy. A Connecticut Yankee goes to Washington, Senator George P. McLean, Birdman of the Senate, published by the Rochester Institute of Technology Press in 2023, is his first book. The new book puts McLean's victory for birds in the context of his distinguished 45-year career. McLean rose from obscurity as a Connecticut farm boy to serve as a governor of Connecticut and as a senator from Connecticut in Congress, where he advised five U.S. presidents and helped lead change and shape events as a U.S. senator from 1911 to 1929. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here today. Before we get into Senator McLean's interest in wildlife conservation, tell me a little bit about his family and growing up in Simsbury. Well, George P. McLean was born in 1857 in Simsbury on an unspoiled rural farm, 100-acre farm uh, in Simsbury, which is, of course, outside of Hartford. And he um, had a love of nature from a a very early age. Um, He hunted um, it was in a area teeming with wildlife, but he didn't like hunt. He didn't like uh, farming. He didn't like getting his hands dirty, and he determined at an early age that um, he wanted to leave the farm and leave this beautiful natural setting that he did love and dedicate himself to a career in Hartford and began as an attorney, and um, then eventually got into politics. But he left behind this beautiful idyllic boyhood of his in Simsbury in favor of a life in politics. What do you think uh, created or inspired his interest in birds? Well, he was a hunter as a young man, and um, he was involved in establishing hunting regulations uh, locally uh, around Simsbury uh, as a young man. But when he got to high school, he encountered Uh, Some of the romantic poets and the transcendentalists of that era, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Greenleaf Whittier, and he loved this poetry. And this poetry really puts nature at a very sacred level. And I think this was very impactful for him in terms of transforming his interest in nature, his interest in hunting, to more of a spiritual connection. And because of his deep religious background, his uh, his great his grandfather was a minister, a congregational minister in Simsbury. He saw man's role as being a steward of the environment as he entered his young adulthood. And he eventually came to renounce hunting in reaction to the excessive hunting of birds that accelerated um, in the early 1900s. You know, I was surprised to read how dire the threats were to wild birds in the book. 
Can you explain some of those things that were happening around 1900 mm -hmm. that did create this threat to birds? Right. There, there were really four key threats to birds that led to declining populations and a couple of high-level extinctions of birds, of common birds that people knew. Birds have always been hunted as a food source since the beginning of time. But after the American Civil War, the country experienced something of a population explosion from around 31 million people in 1860 to 72 million by 1900. But then after the Civil War, it became fashionable primarily for women to wear feathers on hats and in clothing. And so with this increase in population, there were more mouths to feed, more heads to put hats on, and the demand for bird hunting um, accelerated to alarming heights. But perhaps the most significant factor that led to this excessive hunting was the advent of the automatic shotgun, the pump shotgun, around 1890. And so in a very short order of time, individual hunters were transformed into killing machines. And the hunting of birds went from hundreds of thousands of birds per year to millions to tens of millions and ever higher. The most insidious aspect of this, though, was that as the population of birds declined, the price to hunt them went up. And that only accelerated this uh, very out of control level of bird hunting. And so the passenger pigeon went extinct in 1914. Uh, a number of other birds, there was an endemic a parrot in the United States called the Carolina parakeet that went extinct. And many others were on the verge of extinction, like the trumpeter swan, the snowy egret, the wood duck. And so this was the dilemma facing McLean when he entered the Senate in 1911. But what made it very challenging was that each state was free to set its own hunting laws and enforce them however they wanted. The most egregious example was the state of Missouri that had one hunting law, and that was you couldn't hunt on Sunday. But otherwise, you could hunt whatever you want, whenever you wanted, and however much. So this was the dilemma facing McLean was to how, how to deal with these individual states that had their own laws that were weakly enforced. It was surprising to me to also read about how we imported so many feathers for things like hats and costumes and different things. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but he decides he's going to do something about this. And he partners with another congressman in the House, and they introduced the Weeks-McLean bill in 1913. Can you just explain what they were trying to do with that bill? Mm -hmm. The original bill passed in 1913. Um, it was introduced in 1911. So in some ways, it looked as if the problem had been solved. But the biggest challenge that faced McLean and Weeks and others who were pushing this bill was the ultimate constitutional challenge that they believed they were facing. The state's rights advocates felt very confident, and rightfully so, that the federal government had no jurisdiction to intervene in the state, individual state hunting laws. So the challenge for McLean and Weeks and others was how do you get around this very real threat of the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately striking down the Weeks-McLean Law of 1913 on the basis of that the federal government didn't have the constitutional authority to regulate hunting in the states. That was the key challenge they faced. 
And what happens with that challenge? Well, this is really the most fascinating part of the seven-year struggle to pass this legislation. Ultimately, the bill changed and morphed into a treaty. And that's the key word in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the MBTA. McLean and others realized that because of the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, a treaty signed between the U.S. and other nations could not be challenged by the Supreme Court. This is the uh, supremacy clause of the Constitution. And so the Weeks-McLean law was refashioned into a series of treaties between and among nations that has assured the preservation and protection of birds ever since. And so that's really the genius, I think, of the MBTA and why McLean and others should be credited for using all of their legal acumen and using their skills and experience that they developed over many years to come up with this solution that has lasted the test of time. Uh, This legislation has been in effect for over 100 years. What what were some of the challenges besides the fact that there's this issue of, does the federal government have the right to tell the states what to do about hunting? Weren't there other uh, challenges and other objections. We we tend to look back on the, I do anyway, we tend to look back on the early Congress and think, oh, it was just an old boys club. They must have always gotten along and it must have been wonderfully part, you know, collegial. But actually it was pretty partisan and there was a serious objection to protecting birds. What were some of those factors? Well, the two key groups that were opposed to this legislation were the hat industry or the millinery industry and hunting interests. Uh, it's interesting to note that um, in 1910, over 120,000 people were employed in making women's hats, which often employed feathers. And it's interesting that many of these were women, entrepreneurs and poor immigrants that had recently arrived in the U.S. And so you can't blame them for using their, their skills and their experience. It was legal to put these feathers on hats. And so that was one interest group that was solidly against um, this legislation. And then, of course, hunting groups. I mentioned the state of Missouri. McLean's biggest foe was Senator James Reed from Missouri, who opposed this legislation. Um, It was big business to host hunters to come into Missouri and other states to hunt in, in, in what was called the spring hunting season. So it was almost like fishing in a stock pond. They would bring in... um, wealthy business people into these beautiful hunting lodges, and they could hunt. And during times when birds were on their nests, uh, in nesting periods, and they were guaranteed a very bountiful hunt. And this was what many states wanted to continue to do, was to have unlimited hunting, even during times when birds were nesting and incubating their eggs. And so there were, that interest um, was very strong and in the Senate, and I quote uh, Senator Reed his very insensitive remarks about the only value of a snowy egret is to adorn the head the uh, heads of our beautiful ladies. It was the mentality of the of, of many states that didn't really care about birds and their value to nature and their beauty, but it was just to provide hunting opportunities uh, for the, the people in their state. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. I just recently saw this exhibit and I couldn't recommend it more highly. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibition, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, 
Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve is now on display. Learn more about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibition supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit with free admission at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. Our fall issue of Connecticut Explored magazine is on press. The law has influenced the course of Connecticut history. In the fall issue, hear historical arguments over free speech, suspected witchcraft, and state boundary lines. Plus, the Connecticut State Library is digging into legal archives, and what they have found so far will enhance your understanding of Connecticut history, from the colonial era to the age of industry. Cases filed away from 1700 to 1855 in the New Haven County Court records shed much-needed light on the lives of women, African-descended, and indigenous persons in that period. Get your subscription now at ctexplore.org. Now, what about the allies of McLean and others that want to see birds protected? Where's the Audubon Society and all of this or other groups? Mm -hmm. Who are the allies? Yes. I mean, the, the Audubon Societies were set up initially to protect birds. They have a broader mission today. That's certainly fundamental in what the Audubon Societies do today. But often, I think many of us associate Audubon Societies with places to go on bird trips and to learn about the birds and bird identification. But they were set up initially to protect birds. And McLean formed alliances with those and other conservation groups in some very um, well-publicized hearings that he held on this legislation. He involved many conservationists, many business people, people like Henry Ford and others that were sympathetic to this cause. He involved gun manufacturers, which I find interesting. Uh, you would think they would be a foe of this, but they too had an interest in controlling this excessive hunting. Why would that be though? Why would a gun, because I'm thinking of all the Connecticut gun manufacturers out there, why would they feel that way? Well, you know, some people believe that some of our best conservationists are hunters, you know, like Ducks Unlimited is a very responsible group that wants to preserve the populations of birds and keep a balance so that the hunting will be available for generations to come. That that long view as opposed to the short view. Yes. And, and I think McLean had good relationships with many of these manufacturers. They they saw him as an ally in in promoting jobs within Connecticut. And he was a credible figure that I think they listened to. Um, and he was able to form this very vital consensus. But I think the most important ally that he developed was President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, as you may know, was a Democrat. And McLean, uh, I may not have mentioned yet, was a Republican. And the two disagreed on just about everything, the League of Nations, um, details that uh, in, in Wilson's agenda as president. But in this case, the two set all of that aside and they came together and they made sure this bill was passed in July of 1918. And there were many things going on in our country in July of 1918 that foes of the MBTA said we have to postpone and put the MBTA on the back burner. We were at war in Europe. This was our peak participation in World War I. There was a global flu pandemic um, in that time period. There was also a great deal of social and political unrest because this was an unpopular war. But nevertheless, the, the two came together 
and in a bipartisan fashion against the objections of people who had been opposing the bird protection legislation for decades. They came together and signed this legislation that is still in effect today. And I find this inspiring because it's this spirit of bipartisanship that I believe most of us really crave today. Now, I know they had to reach out to over 10 countries as part of the process to get a treaty signed. And I have to admit that I wasn't as informed as I probably should have been about how a, how a treaty gets signed and how it goes through the process. So what is the process from the time you propose a treaty, you reach out to other countries until you get the president to sign it? What is the process? Yeah, and this was a very complicated process because the treaty signee, the first one was Great Britain, which was actually representing Canada as a dominion of Great Britain. And so while the war was raging in Europe, President Wilson sent his Secretary of State, was William Jennings Bryan, by the way, to um, England to get this treaty signed. And so even in wartime, um, they were able to negotiate this in 1916, 1917. And then the treaties have to be ratified by the Senate. And with Wilson's backing, though, I think the, the, the bill had significant strength, although there were some holdups and McLean pushed Wilson to overcome some of the inertia that had been caused by the war primarily. Uh, I mean, many people just felt like, you know, we don't need to be worrying about birds. We're at war right now. But I think that was such an urgency to get this legislation signed once the treaties were signed that Wilson and McLean came together to ensure momentum despite these stressful times that the country was experiencing. So this bill, both the bill that he proposed and the ultimate treaty, they really are a cornerstone of conservation legislation and conservation law and practice in the United States. What are some of the things that have come after that that really use this as a cornerstone? That's a great point, Mary, because there are far-reaching implications and positive consequences from the MBTA This was when the federal government began this very important watchdog role for the environment. Um, It really ended the states' rights debate that uh, allowed each state to do whatever they wanted in terms of environmental protection. So in many ways, certain legislation that's followed is a byproduct of the MBTA. There was the Bald Eagle Act, um, protecting that as our national symbol in the 1930s. The um, Endangered Species Act of the 1930s. 70s is another outgrowth. Uh, The Animal Rights Act of the 1960s. I believe even the Environmental Protection Act itself in the 1970s is an outgrowth. We take for granted today that the federal government has this watchdog role and has the ability to enforce these laws, which was so critically missing with the states. It's one thing to have a law, but if you can't enforce it, it's useless. And the MBTA provided a mechanism for the enforcement of these um, game laws in individual areas around the country. And so I think that's really the biggest legacy of the MBTA. You know, obviously it's important to protect birds, but it has established this expansive role of the federal government to be the environmental watchdog for the nation that we so vitally need. What other things do you think George McLean left as part of his legacy? As Connecticut residents, um, I hope most of you know about the McLean Game Refuge um, near Simsbury. 
Uh, this is 4,000 acres of land that McLean set aside in his will for use uh, in the future in perpetuity for the public to enjoy these lands that he found so much peace and peace of mind, body, and soul. He said in his will that he wanted to have this land set aside for people to enjoy the things of God that he encountered there during many uh, points in his life. So every year, um, tens of thousands of visitors go to the game refuge. There's miles of just beautiful, unspoiled, virgin forest land, hiking trails. And I think that's a very important part of his legacy. McLean also, in his will, um, set up the McLean Care Home, which exists today. Uh, the endowment fund um, has persisted since his will was established. And this was one of the first, what I'll call, assisted living centers in the United States. And the, this was in 1932 that he established this. And this was before Social Security. And he wanted to create a place where indigent women primarily could go for care in their elderly years. So the McLean Care Home, the McLean Game Refuge is part of his legacy. And you know some other things in my book that I show the depth and breadth of his areas of reform. He, he was a, a forerunner in mental illness reform. He helped set up uh, what's today the um, Mental Health America Professional Association to improve the care of the mentally ill. And this was, he was the first president of the Connecticut Association and these spread throughout the country. And I think that's another example that he really had a reformer's heart um, and took on some very challenging issues and, and that, that are still in effect today. He was opposed to women's suffrage, but I'll let that go for right now. <laughs> what made you interested in this and what made you want to spend your time to write this, this book? Well, in 2018, on the 100th anniversary of the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act, there was a considerable amount of news coverage uh, about uh, the MBTA and McLean's role, leadership role in its passage. And these articles triggered nagging questions and curiosity that I've had about George P. McLean for virtually my whole life. My middle name is McLean, and he's my great, great uncle. And I always wanted to learn more about him. And when I learned that he was in the U.S. Senate from 1911 to 1929, 18 years, um, I, this, he must have led a fascinating life. And also he was governor of Connecticut. Uh, from 1900 to 1902. And so I wanted to learn the arc of his life and to put the MBTA into a broader context and to understand how it fit in to his overall life. And, and I uncovered a fascinating story, you know, his relationships with five U.S. presidents that he advised and knew well, uh, I've been able to document. And it's just a fascinating life story, um, and I think you'll learn a good deal about Connecticut history, U.S. history, in a, during a period of time that most of us don't know a lot about, you know, this time period from the Civil War to, to um, World War II. I think that's missing from many of our, uh, our reading lists. Um, we know a lot about the Civil War and World War II, but those events in between those uh, critical events of the Civil War and World War II, we don't know so much about. And where were you able to find papers and documents to do the research in? I know this is you're an archivist, so this is your specialty, but where were you able to find materials? Yeah, well, there's some 300 sources um, in my book, and finding uh, primary materials or letters was the most challenging. But 
he um, he had many papers that were scattered about in a dozen or so archives that I was able to collect. There were many writings within my own family. Um, people wrote about George P. McLean, his nephews, his great nephews and nieces. And I have some of that material. Um, the McLean Care Home had an archive, including the uh, an interview with McLean's chauffeur. Uh, they say a valet knows a person better than anyone, but I would say maybe a chauffeur knows a person as, in an intimate way. And there was a, an extensive interview that his chauffeur did that I found um, at the McLean Care Home. But newspaper coverage was vital in reconstructing the breadth and depth of his career. Some 50 um, newspapers were utilized in this. In addition, all of his speeches um, that were in the congressional record, speeches that were reprinted in newspapers were a, a, an important source. My book was peer-reviewed by two university historians, and they suggested many sources. And so all in all, it's a, it's a very in-depth contextual biography of a fascinating person that I think has been overlooked in certainly Connecticut history, if not in U.S. history. One reviewer wrote, this book is also a love song to a distant relative. We need more historians who truly care about the people they're writing about and Greeley does just that, unquote, which I agree with. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Greeley can be reached at his website, willgreeley.com. You can also see upcoming lectures he's giving, contact him about giving a book talk. To order your copy of A Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, you could go to one of any number of our independent bookstores. We'll list four in our show notes that carry the book. You can go to the RIT Press website or Amazon.com. Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, is the winner of a 2023 Award of Merit for Excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. We count on your support to be able to bring you fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg every two weeks. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donation button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link. We appreciate your donations in any amount. Thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.